Free search for what? Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, interview recognized leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. I discuss the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods are used to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? This week, I have the privilege to speak with Gillian Skinner. Mrs. Skinner was deputy leader of the New South Wales Liberal Parliamentary Party between 2007 and 2014. In 2011, she became the first standalone minister for medical research in New South Wales and was a minister for health between 2011 and 2017. Mrs. Skinner is one of Australia's most experienced and most respected politicians in health and medical research. Mrs. Skinner, welcome and thank you very much for talking with me today. You are very welcome. So as Minister for Medical Research and Minister for Health, you contributed directly to developing the New South Wales health and clinical workforce and to improving infrastructure, including hospitals and local districts. Can I start by asking you, why did you enter state politics and how did you become Minister for Health and Medical Research? Why not finance, transport or tourism? Well, I mean, I'd always been very interested in social policy in particular. And in fact, it was education that drew me into political life. I'd been a, well, I guess what you'd call a community activist on the part of my local primary school, and which was running into trouble. So long story short, I was elected to Parliament. Really, that was the background. But just before being elected, I had chaired, I was uh, head of the Department of Youth Affairs in the New South Wales bureaucracy, and I had chaired a ministerial task force to develop a youth health policy. So that was my entree to, to health. Then in 2014, I was elected. We were in, the Liberal government was in office. A year later, there was a general election, went into opposition, and I was appointed the Shadow Minister for Health. And I think largely because of the work that I'd had done with the ministers at, in the government then on developing that youth health policy, but partly because of my known passion for working with particularly vulnerable communities and the value of science in developing policies to make things better for them. Why do we need research? Maybe another way to ask you, why didn't New South Wales have a Minister for Health or, or medical research before 2011, and why did we need one then? Well, to be perfectly honest, there had been ministers for medical research, but that had sort of been a tack on to other major portfolios. Like, I think there was one who was a minister for uh, regional affairs, or there was another one who, anyway, it was regarded as a secondary interest and it got very little attention. And the real problem was the bureaucracy for health was was actually in a regional port, um, bureaucratic, bureaucratic area. So it just didn't get a looking. There was no profile. And in, in fact, when we decided to create the standalone portfolio, and why I really wanted to be the Minister for Medical Research as well as Minister for Health, I spent a lot of time talking to research institutes in New South Wales, to researchers and scientists, and to universities, to their vice-chancellors who were their research vice-chancellors. But the straw that really broke the camel's back for me was when I met 
a very senior clinician in one of our major teaching hospitals who had been told by that hospital that research was not core business. And I thought, that is plainly ridiculous. Of course it's core business. It should be core business to everyone who is working in the health system. Now, um, that is health that is based on, on in medicine. But health, of course, uh, research crosses the whole world. That's and right. I can come to that a little bit later if you want. Yes. Well, uh, look, just for example on that, at the moment one of the projects I'm working on is I'm chair of the advisory board for a project that was a recipient of one of the first medical research future fund frontier grants. Yes. It's called Outbreak. It's looking at antimicrobial resistance and it's a one health approach. So it's really about collecting data that's already been done through lots of research work, not only from health, looking at clinical practice, but agriculture, environment, water management, you name it. So research and, and important to that whole project is proving the economic value of all of that. So that is a research project. Research covers just about everything we do if we're going to do it thoroughly and in a way that can withstand scrutiny. Research has many aspects and a state like New South Wales is often regarded as a very multicultural state. Indeed. Who benefits from the research we do in New South Wales? Well, you know, whether they know it or not, everybody does. Yeah. And when you talk about vulnerable communities, there's some areas where research projects have focused particularly on how we provide better services for people who might be marginalised. I'm just thinking this morning I did a, a, a meeting with another group where I'm involved where they're looking at developing projects for post-COVID-19, better access using telehealth and virtual connections for Aboriginal communities, for remote rural communities. I mean, some of that's happening already, but I think now building on the work that's been done over the last few months is absolutely the golden moment where we can address the needs of those communities through you've got to research it, you've got to prove to the funders and the people who are going to have the responsibility for rolling out this policy, you have to prove to them that this will work, that it will be financially beneficial and that it will be clinically beneficial to the people for whom it's targeting. targeting. You speak with a lot of passion about research and, and health. Do you have more freedom now than you did as a minister? How did you choose the work done in research as a minister? Well, as a minister for health, it is the largest portfolio in state government. It's a third of the state budget, the recurrent budget. And, you know, it's a huge amount of money, $23, $24 billion. But the real issue is that most of that is taken up through staff keeping things going the way they always were. So the, the issue for me was how do I get in my pet projects? I used to carry around a big white folder that said minister's priorities so that <laughs> the bureaucrats could know, yeah, look, we have to focus on getting better treatment in hospitals, getting rid of long waitingness for elective surgery, et cetera, making better, uh, more timely treatment in hospitals. But we also need to uh, focus on new models of care, new things. And research was always one of the things that I thought should have benefited more. I, I mean, one of the first things we did when I became a minister was, and we said this before the election, we do this, we commissioned a review 
of research in New South Wales to raise a profile and to help us establish it. I've already committed to establishing what I initially called the Office of Medical Research, but very clearly had to become the Office of Health and Medical Research because it's not all just about medicines and laboratories. It is about new models of care and everything like that. Where, where did you get the advice you, you needed? How did you choose the experts to talk to? Well, when you've been a shadow minister for 14 years and you're very passionate you're very committed to the job and you I live I live I'm a workaholic I would travel I would drive all over the state when you're in opposition you have no staff so you are it mm-hmm. I wrote all my own policies I wrote all my own media releases I did parliamentary speeches etc I went out and met people over 14 years you get to meet people that are the key leaders in the field and I could then choose the people that I valued in terms of providing advice or even feedback on the sort of things that I wanted to do. So when I I already announced in, in up from opposition that I was going to ask Peter Wills, who was well respected, to re- conduct this review into medical research and he did. So it's interesting you were responsible responsible for both health and research. Health is almost a given. We don't have we don't need to sell health to people. People want good health. Did you feel you had to sell yeah. research? Was that a, a harder um, sell? Yes and no. Look, I mean, you, you mentioned before my passion. I'm a health tragic. And, yes, I am extremely passionate. And when somebody is really as passionate as I am, I can argue that way in Cabinet meetings, in public meetings. Um, when I went out to release the results of the review into medical research, I remember it very clearly. I did it in the atrium entrance to the Garvin Institute, you would know it well. And it was packed, absolutely packed, because they realised, those researchers, I think, realised they had somebody who was going to be a real champion, and I was. And, yeah, we gave them a bit of extra money, but in the scheme of things, not that much. But I spoke about it everywhere. And when I was talking about health, I talked about research. And I was very proudly the Minister for Medical Research, and we also set up some fantastic projects, one which was stemmed back from, gosh, years earlier when I was in opposition, the uh, Medical Devices Fund, where where we put together a small amount of money in the first instance and then called for expressions of interest from people who had developed a project but really wanted to take it to the next level through clinical trials and particularly commercialisation. And that took off. It absolutely took off and it's still going very, very strong. And I think it's had maybe $50, $60 million invested in it now. And it's known worldwide. I led a, a health trade delegation to China in 2016 and a number of the people who had been involved with those devices came with me and there was huge interest in investment, not only in China but around the world. So I'm not surprised to hear researchers were, were very strong supporters. How about the public? Yeah, look, I mean, the the real challenge it always was is getting media attention to these good news stories. And you know, the media liked talking about things that were problematic. They still do. And, and you know, there were some really good journalists who did, um, but we also put out some very, very good newsletters and, uh, and I think it gradually gathered momentum. If you ask the public what they think of research, medical research, 
they'll all say yes, but they don't know what it is yes. because they really don't, they haven't read up much about it. Although I'm currently on the, the board of the Children's Cancer Institute, which is a research institute at UNSW, based at UNSW, it links in with um, Sydney Children's Hospital at Randwick. And they are very good at getting publicity, mainly through their flagship program, Zero Childhood Cancer. Uh, it's always been my view, and I, I think it's been proven time and again, that you can get media attention and public attention if you, you, you tell stories. And Zero Childhood Cancer has really gathered momentum because of some of the survival stories for children who were very close to death through research, through genomics, through clinical practice, based on that that whole round of it's it's a fascinating project 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 because it starts off with identify identification of the children who I think that they target children who have 30% or less chance of survival and then they um, they uh, take a sample of their tumours the tumour is, is sequenced at the garden then it's brought back to the lab they test a whole lot of different drugs and then they take it to the child who's still in hospital and they the clinicians treat and they feed back to the laboratories the effectiveness where there needs to be tweaked. So it's not only bench to bedside, it's bench to bedside, back to bench to bedside. It's a whole virtual cycle. And they have got treatments, it's very successful treatments for children who were really close to dying. And all of this, with, by the way, with these children, is done within nine to 12 weeks. Right. So I'm really interested to hear more about, you know, the, this idea of developing good stories and talking to the public, in particular yes. with new technologies and in particular now with COVID-19, a lot of fake Absolutely. news. New technologies are, are being challenged by non-experts. What do you think about the real value of researchers to go out to the public and explain what they're doing, even though research can be a very complex process? Look, I, I think it's terribly important. And one of the, I think I mentioned I'm on the outbreak advisory council, I'm chairing it. This is the, um, the antimicrobial resistance project, which is four universities, two local health districts, about 26 researchers and CSIRO. And they are now getting a lot of publicity, not mainstream necessarily, although there have been a few think articles in um, think pieces that the old journalist in me calls them, in the Australian and other newspapers. And I think because people are so conscious of the risks of viruses without vaccines, yes. they are more receptive now to the idea that we need to really worry about preparing for future potential pandemics. And the antimicrobial resistance program that I'm, this one that I'm working on, they've chosen antibiotic res resistance because it's so much more easily understood by people. But, you know, you can tell stories of people who have had hospital-acquired or community-acquired antibiotic-resistant infections that, that just can't be treated. So telling the story that there's been research worldwide and there's one very big research project done in, in the UK a couple of years ago, which predicted that without intervention, antimicrobial resistance would kill 10 million people a year by the year 2050. 
and would cost $100 trillion. So, you know, that after COVID-19, people are more open-minded to thinking about these things into the future. It always strikes me that researchers are perceived as people who stay in their laboratories and don't... don't yes, uh, well, they're not. <laughs> no, right. And yes. But this new technology has raised ethical issues, and I think we should all be talking about these issues and discussing what they, what they are. Well, I think one of the really important things is to bring the community with you. And if you're going to be collecting data, they need to be confident that uh, their own personal data is protected, that if, if there, anything is going to be used uh, that has any chance of having them identified, has can, can only be done with their knowledge and protection and, and consent, but that where they're doing collated information, it's de-identified. But even de-identifying data can be problematic. I know that from as Minister for Health, you know, if we were reporting on the performance of individual hospitals as, and, you know, who, who where there were outliers in terms of, you know, people recovery or not, if there were tiny hospitals in the country, you could tell who the people were because the community was so small and they all know each other. Yes. And so you, you really have to be very, very careful. But I think in my time working in health, so it dates back really 25, 30 years when you add it all together, in early days people were very protective of privacy. These days there's a lot more willingness on the part of people to, to be more engaged. I, have, I did a lot of work in the field of HIV in the early days because of the stigma attached and the, and the potential barriers to employment, etc. cetera, uh, people were almost hiding. Well, people were hiding. They weren't being tested because they didn't want it to be known that they were HIV positive. But once we developed policies that showed that they could be treated, etc., etc., and brought them along with you on the journey, and I always worked with community groups, always, then they came on board. Now, there's a lot more willingness on part of people like that now to be open and engaged. But they've got to trust you. They've got to trust the researchers. They've got to trust the people that are keeping the data. You've only got to look at my health record, whether, you know, in the early days people wouldn't sign up because they were not confident. And even with the, the COVID app, you know, there was some early resistance because I think some people weren't sure that this was going to be just limited to tracking their potential exposure. So it's it's an issue that really has to be dealt with very carefully. You as a minister, did you were, were you perceived as a politician? Did you have less freedom? Did you have less support because you were a politician talking about research and health? Do you have more freedom? More, do people trust you more now than you probably don't have if you don't have this role? No, I, I don't think there was any difference at all. But that's because of the reputation, I suppose, I've developed over the years. One of the great advantages of, of how I, I, in my life in politics evolved was I didn't ever want to be anything else except the Minister for Health and medical research. You know, I didn't mind. I, I did other portfolios as well as add-ons at times and for one two-year period I was the Shadow Minister for Education. But I could be bold. I could stick my neck out and, and really advocate on their behalf and I, they did, I did. They knew that. My Cabinet colleagues knew that. My, the Premier that I worked for knew that. 
They knew that I was not going to be silent, but I, was, I would be discreet. I would not, you know, and I still don't uh, break confidentiality, but they knew that they had a champion, really. And the other thing that I encouraged, and I, I was very pleased to see, and I think it's key now to why we have made big inroads, is a, a greater collaboration. When I first got involved in talking to the research institutes and so on, there was such competitiveness and jealousy that they really didn't do any work. They didn't work together very much and sometimes they were crossing paths. Um, there's a lot more collaboration than ever before. This is the same with universities. As I said, in the, in the AMR project, there are four universities working together and I think that's had been very healthy as well. And you lead by example. I could, as a, I could work with Labor members of Parliament. I did. I, I, I involved in the debates and discussions. I led some um, workshops. I, I'll never forget when I was in opposition working because it was a, a conscience vote, which meant that I, it was not tied to any political party political view. When a, a discussion about embryonic stem cell research first came up in, mm, it was a long time ago. I was in the 20, maybe 2007, something like that, the Labor Party spokesman and myself put together a workshop for members of parliament and brought in experts to talk about what stem cell research really was because there was a lot of disinformation about we were killing possible you know, babies um, to create this, you know. Yeah. And and so it was it was that kind of... Doing that kind of thing, I guess, built up uh, confidence in the research community that, that I really was committed to with their cause. And there are, many, there, there, there are many global health challenges, or, and you touched on, on a few. How do you choose which ones to prioritise as a, as a minister? Yes, were, were you concerned about who was going to benefit in our society? And were you concerned that there, should, there needed to be a fair an equitable benefit for, for everyone. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that was part of my mantra. The patients come first and access for all, really. And that meant in some cases you had to make special provision for people who were marginalised, disadvantaged and so on, whether that would have been people in remote uh, rural communities, whether it was Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders, whether it was people who didn't speak English, newly arrived, immigrants, refugees, people with HIV, all of those, they were very much in the forefront of my mind always. And so how did I prioritise? Well, it was about trying to make sure we had a fair and equitable funding mechanism so that hospitals and health services across the state had their fair share or more, in, in, in some cases, they were, there was uh, an add-on factor to deal with the, the particular needs of a community it led my particular passion for IT and telehealth. I, um, we invested a lot of money in uh, IT in those early days. I was really horrified at how little investment there'd been, particularly in country New South Wales. Uh, medical record, electronic medical records were not heard of when I became, well, they were just starting, but there'd been tremendous clinical resistance because they, they'd, the Department of Health had which really was had a reputation at the time of being sort of a head office that dictated the world. Yeah. They brought in a product, dumped it in hospitals without the proper training, without 
et cetera, et cetera. So there was enormous resistance. But in my view, if to, to really get to the people who needed the healthcare, we needed to prove to them that electronic medical records, electronic management of medicines, et cetera, would make a difference. See, all of these things are investments, but they're all invested on, they're all based on a research in a way, research to demonstrate to the public or to the clinicians in this case that this was something that was worth their while getting involved in. So those sort of things were high on my list of priorities. Then some of the things where people had been missing out, palliative care. It was fascinating. I, I drove all over New South Wales in the 14 years I was Shadow Minister and in every community consultation that I did, and I sit and talk to people all over the place, the lack of access to palliative care was a huge issue. So that was one. Organ donation, New South Wales was way behind the eight ball. That was another issue. Closing the gap, all of the Aboriginal health issues, another very important issue. But the, and, and then what I called one of my major pushes in the, from I'll get about 2014 onwards was what I called integrated care, which was joining up the tertiary level care provided in hospital or hospital care with community-based care with research with with community groups and so on and I set aside a a pool of funds centrally on the base which would be available to the local health district where we devolve responsibility and where they had increased budget every year but to where they usually just spend it on increased hospital care and I said to them you can tap into this central pool of money if you find some of your own funds and you find partners in the community who will also have skin in the game, either in kind or in money, to come up with integrated care, which meant you've got projects such as a first thousand days of life for Aboriginal babies out in one of the remote communities where Aboriginal women at conception, when they had first conceived, were enrolled in this program and then through their delivery, post-delivery, and through the children's life until they started preschool. What was the issue there? Was it infrastructure or was it people? It it was both. It was infrastructure in the sense of um, getting the technology to make it work. And as part of that integrated care project, to start off, but I won't go into details, but it, it's, we've divided into several tranches, but one of it was investing in the, the IT systems to make it work. And then it was the people, finding and enticing the people to come on board and be involved or employing them even at the local health district or engaging organisations. So one of the groups that we engaged was a Aboriginal medical service out at Wellington, which is a a community in the far west of New South Wales where they work with their community and it has had amazing results and then involving the people for whom they were providing care. One of the most fabulous vignettes that I've seen was from an Aboriginal man who uh, said, I'm much better now because I know why I'm taking medicine. Before, I didn't know why I was taking the medicine. So when I got sick of it, I just didn't take it anymore. But now I know why I take it. Hallelujah. (laughs) It's that kind of... You started with education, and I think education there is very important to build the future's research workforce. Well, the the Children's Cancer Institute, uh, the one I mentioned, is very interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've done with them, well, just announced last year, was they've got four 
four sources of funds, the Commonwealth Government, the State Government, the University of New South Wales and uh, philanthropy that I can't mention yet but will be announced soon, to build the, Australia's first comprehensive children's cancer centre, which will be located, built, purpose-built. It'll straddle from UNSW across the road to the Prince of Wales precinct where the new children's hospital will be built. And that involved Michelle Haber, if you don't know her, there's another scientist that is absolutely brilliant, who's the chief executive of the Children's Cancer Institute, and Tracy O'Brien, who's head of Kids Cancer Centre. They, and they work hand in glove. I mean, it's like there's no distance between them. No. So that's a rel- relatively recent thing in my experience. You know, it used to be the researchers did the research over here and the results of their work came to the people over here. But the reason why we put the proposition to governments and and everyone else to build this comprehensive centre is because it will be truly integrated. They will share office space. They will share coffee pots. And that's the key, I think. And and this is something I I see with early or young researchers in general. They they do not want to be in one corner anymore. They want to participate. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, it's really interesting. This morning I did a, a Zoom meeting with um, another group that I've just joined, which is really a lobby group, and they advocate, they're doing a lot of pro- research projects on, projects on, you know, specific topics. And they had people from research, researchers from dental, from Aboriginal health, etc. And they're all in the same admittedly, virtual room, but they were listening and talking to each other. It's really interesting. You know, you can get that if you get to sit people in a meeting, but these virtual meetings have got a lot to be said for really engaging people. How are we doing today? How are we doing in New South Wales? How are we doing in Australia in terms of research, medical research and health? Oh, look, I mean, I'm talking mostly about New South Wales, of course, but the the, the children's, the the Zero Childhood Cancer Project is now worldwide. They have partnerships in Germany, France, Canada, America, uh, China, um, and they've been funded by the Commonwealth Government now to treat every child in Australia uh, with cancer that's considered to be incurable or where treatment has failed. Mm -hmm. So... That is now internationally recognised. And some of our researchers, like Michelle Haber and others, speak at conferences all over the world. So considering our, our population size, I think we punch above our weight. Mm-hmm. The, the real issue, though, we talked about earlier, is getting that known to the broader community. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I tear my hair out when I see stories in the, the popular press, maybe a Sunday paper with some a nice photo spread of, children who are really sick, they're having to go to Mexico to get treatment for their cancers. No. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if they can't be treated here, they can't be treated anywhere, no. to be perfectly honest. One of the other really good things that we do here, there's another one that I was very passionate about and involved with, was establishing a biobank. So we now have a biobank that's located in at Apia in a, on the precinct of at Royal Prince Albert Hospital, and it, it stores samples from all over Australia that is there for future reference so that if there's not a treatment now, they've got the samples, 
it can be they can be accessed with very careful safeguards and so on that you know for future treatments so i think with champions you will, you will always have to have champions but and there will be and there'll be a demand you know when people realize you can get treatments for these conditions there'll be continue to be a demand michelle haber and these people at the children's cancer institute started 50 years ago with leukemia in those days 70 percent of kids died of leukemia mm. now it's about 10 percent that tells you why there will always be a demand for this kind of work because it goes on to the next round yeah. if you had a magic wand what would you fix now what is a, a challenge that you would get fixed now if i had a magic wand i would want the world to understand the importance of investing in research that increases our knowledge and our understanding and then our ability to come up with new treatments this is that's in medicine i mean there's a whole lot of other things if i had a wand i'd wish for no end, no poverty in the world you know but talking about you know in the health area it would be that kind of thing and then treatments that can be investments that can be made available to people who for whom access is impossible in australia we're relatively fortunate in in some of the third world countries i mean the work that i've done in hiv for example i'm thrilled to say that now it's been it's been replicated in other parts of the world we're the first state in australia then the first country in the world i think to really have a, a policy and a project was as committed to people with hiv And, you know, with things like the Gates Foundation rolling some of that uh, antiretrovirals out, that would be my vision. Well, we'd have to get there. <laughs> and what if someone said to you, Gillian, here's a, the magic wand, come back as a minister and you'll have everything you need to, to, to do what you want to do. What would you say? I, I'd want to maintain the, the budget for a start and or in fact increase the budget, although that's difficult because there are other things that need to be invested in as well. I'd probably increase the research budget. I'd maintain our maintenance, uh, uh, the workforce, um, increase the workforce in some areas and support them. I mean, one of the other problems with medical research before I became the minister was some of the funding funded programs were very short-lived. So there was no certainty for researchers I mean, in some cases, they were getting funding for a year. So how can you guarantee somebody a lifestyle and, you know, a permanence with only one year's funding? So there'd be things like that. But, you know, if I came back as health minister, I'd just build on the sort of things that we're talking about now, mm -hmm. increased access for vulnerable communities, more research into the sort of things we've been talking about, much better integration of healthcare across Commonwealth state community settings. I've taken a lot of your time. I'm very grateful. It's very clear. Your passion hasn't stopped and you, you still have very strong yeah. words. You have, you, you're very inspirational. I thank you very, very much for your time, Gillian. I had a, a fantastic time. I hope my listeners can learn also a lot more. Thank you. Now I've enjoyed talking about it. It's, it's, it's a topic I could talk about forever. <laughs> Maybe I'll come thank back with more questions later. Thank you very much, Gillian. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Research for What. To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for what? <laughs>